You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and it's uh, Associated Websites, uh, One Step Off the Grid and the EV Focused, The Driven. And joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. I trust you are well, David. Giles, I'm well. I trust you're well and all our listeners as well. And what a great conversation we have this evening. Well, we do, actually. Um, one of the sort of um, unheralded and, and maybe unsung sort of, um, well, I'd sort of say heroes of the uh, of the energy transition, but someone who has just spent a lot of effort trying to sort of clear away the hurdles and all the sort of, you know, the things which are in the way of our energy transition. And um, Stephanie Bashir from uh, Next Advisory, um, uh, her firm released a report this week sort of talking about um, what we could achieve and um, the strides that we could make if we had more competition in the transmission sector, which is um, an interesting idea, um, particularly as the transmission tends to be a complete monopoly in Australia. And it comes, as we're hearing a lot in sort of mainstream media about some, and look on this podcast too, about the problems with transmission and all the delays that we're seeing with projects and what have you. Anyway, look, fascinating conversation. Um, let's pick, um, start off with our interview with Stephanie Bashir. Uh, Stephanie Bashir, uh, thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you, Giles and, and David, for having me. Well, it is a pleasure to have you here. Now, you've been involved in some of the big debates about sort of policy um, over the last 12 months. Um, I, I'm just kind of fascinated before we get into your latest report about transmission, about sort of your overall views about whether it is actually making moves forward or backwards, because we had 10 years of, I guess, sort of, you know, climate and policy denial. Uh, we've had a new government, which is obviously sort of saying that it's much more open to new investments, new policies, new targets and things like that. But we've got this incredible sort of complexity around, um, you know, regulatory bodies and regulations and the right market signals. Are we mm -hmm. making progress? Yeah, no, very good question. Um, look, I think over the last 18 months in the, since the government has come in, we've seen like seismic shift in both energy and climate policy. They have set the goals, the targets. Um, obviously, as you said, we've had 10 years of inaction and now we're really not just trying to set the policy um, and the way forward, but we also need to catch up on the implementation and make sure that we've got all the um, generation and transmission and storage that we need to build in time for the coal power stations to close and more strategically to ensure that we can electrify um, and become the energy superpower uh, that we all um, are envisioning. I mean, the great thing is that we are all on the same uh, goal and we all agree to it. It's now a matter of how we're going to get there. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've, you've butted your heads up against the, um, the former sort of energy security board and several key issues. I think the capacity market um, design and also on sort of grid access and things like that. Yeah. Um, how important is it that the ESB seems to have been dissolved and sort of regulated and, and, and sort of those various agencies been sort of relegated to an advisory body and that policy is now seems to be developed by sort of government departments? Um, is that a good thing? Well, I think if we go back to when the ESB was established, it was established at a time where that coordination was needed and it was established under the previous government with specific uh, objectives, if you like, and, and deliverables that they had to do. Um, it's actually good to see that the federal and states have set up the National Partnership Agreement um, and that they're working together and making sure that they set the policy and direction um, and provide the direction for the market bodies and regulators to then go away and implement. For the four years that uh, we had the ESB uh, 2025 market design program, 
uh, it was a difficult four years. Uh, there were a lot of recommendations that were put on the table that weren't really supported by majority of industry and majority of stakeholder groups, if you like, uh, mainly around obviously the capacity market, which is you know been uh, ditched, if you like, by the by the federal government, uh, replaced with a capacity investment scheme. We see that as a really great thing. Um, and will drive and provide the uh, investment signals that are going to be needed. Um, hopefully, um, what we're hearing is that the capacity investment scheme uh, auction will be uh, this this year, um, which is going to be necessary. Uh, we can't keep delaying things anymore, and we need to move as fast as possible. Mm. Um, and then you've obviously got still the discussions and debates around the access framework, which, you know, while the, um, at, the last, at the last energy minister's meeting, ministers said, you know, we don't want to proceed with locational marginal pricing. Um, it seems to still be there in the shadows. Um, again, that has really wasted a lot of time um, and effort and resources over the years. And hopefully um, at the over the next few months, you know, the industry with, I think, the DQ, the department, um, and the new ESB are going to come to a resolution moving forward. But if you ask me, I think, you know, we need to put a line in the sand on that because we have actually a huge task ahead of us in building infrastructure and access frameworks, while they are important uh, in the long term, at the moment, our focus really needs to be about building the transmission. And, and that was very much the basis of your report, um, which you released this week, and you sort of pointed out that um, without this general transmission, things are going to be, I think it was $13 billion more expensive um, than there would be otherwise. Just explain exactly what your report found, if you could. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess just a little bit of background about the report. Uh, we initiated this report so that we can have a think about, you know, where are some of the um, bottlenecks in building the transmission and where are the efficiencies of scale that we can actually try and, and leverage um, and what solutions can we put in place. Um, in a in an analysis that we did last year with Endgame Economics, uh, we tested the impact on of delays of building transmission on consumer bills, and that found that each year we delay the transmission build has a huge increase on electricity, wholesale electricity prices, and that is uh, more um, more so for business customers. Uh, Stephanie, Stephanie, could you just, uh, 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 that's an important point. Could you just explain why it is that delaying transmission builder suddenly makes electricity prices go up? It doesn't suddenly, but um, what it does is basically um, it, it presents the um, uncertainty, if you like, because we are still keeping the coal power stations open um, and that is more expensive so we're not leveraging the cheaper prices um, but i think really importantly um, victoria was seen as more severely impacted because of its reliance on the energy generation in new south wales and tasmania and the modeling showed that a significant spike in prices um, will occur if vni west and marinus link are delayed and so your um uh, uh, the way to um, get transmission done in the most cost-effective way is to take advantage of what I think is the uh, groundbreaking work in your report of identifying all these big international transmission companies and suggesting that they, uh, by providing competition in the provision of transmission services, that is uh, bidding, I guess, for a transmission franchise, uh, that that this will re lower cost to consumers, even though it's still a monopoly on that part of the work. Yeah, so what we're saying is um, at the moment, 
there is basically over six companies that are competing um, and they are all competing in the New South Wales RES non-regulated transmission. Um, and we highlight who they are in our report. There could be more, but they're the ones right now on the ground. Um, and these transmit the global transmission players do have a strong interest here in Australia. Um, and basically they do have the procurement and the supply chain leverage that the existing regulated monopolies here in Australia don't have. And what we highlight is um, basically the, um, the PTNSPs, which are the regulated monopolies, um, have minimal international purchasing power and accessing highly specialized assets and supply chains. Um, and, and that is demonstrated by their regulated asset base versus the regulated asset base of international players. So they're smaller than the international players in Oh, much smaller. So, for example, the French transmission owner RTE has an annual revenue equivalent uh, to that of each of the largest PTNSPs in the NAM. So an asset base that is larger than the entire NAM. So, for example, RTE has an asset base of $28 billion. And the NEM, the total NEM asset base is $21 billion. So this that's is the, for the so, transmission. So this assumes there'll be some economy of scale and that therefore their purchasing power uh, will be better than the local transmission companies. Uh, I, I mean, that's, that's uh, and they'll be more efficient and can source the people, import the people, I guess, who will instantly understand all the Australian rules. Uh, and, and, and therefore be able to build the transmission quicker. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I, 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 there's a lot of things to talk about in that, in, in my opinion. And I, uh, do we have any idea, first of all, I know the um, franchise for the Arana Zone has been awarded, but do, we, do you have any uh, idea of how the... Um, uh, annual cost that that's going to involve would have compared to if someone like Transcrit had done it under a regulated framework? Because I must say, I don't have a clue. Yeah, none <laughs> and, of that information is actually public. And, and, and I'm, just um, gonna, I'm just going to interrupt there and just say it actually hasn't been awarded because I think sort of there's three, there's three finalists there. I think there is a notionally preferred... <laughs> candidate or something like that. I remember getting a bit of trouble when I wrote the story saying, no, no, it hasn't been one. We've just decided which one we're going to have a preference. So and anyway, I just thought I'd just yeah. point that out. Anyway, thank you. I think even when they're doing the uh, transmission cost forecasts for the ISB, AUMO find it very difficult to get the accurate costs and predictions from the existing PTNSBs. They're not the only ones. I think the transmission companies have difficulty with themselves. And let's face it, uh, it's not just regulated transmission companies. Uh, all large projects have, un uh, just ask Snowy, have unexpected uh, yeah. cost blowouts. It's absolutely normal. It's, it's, you know, it's like it's a version of investor bingo, you know, as to how much costs will go up. And the first downgrade in costs is never the last one, of course. Yeah, and it's really about who's going to wear the risk, right, when, when these cost blowouts happen. Currently, under the regulated framework, consumers basically bear all the risk and all the cost. And what we're saying is when you open it up to these uh, private companies, you they bring in, um, you know, not only does it encourage innovation in both the technical um, approach and delivery, um, which then brings efficiencies, it also attracts international private finance and capital more quickly and efficiently. Um, but more importantly, I think the key thing is the significant supply chain and procurement leverage to deliver faster and cheaper. Yes, I, I'll just, I, I, I think it's a very interesting idea and I, I fully uh, think that uh, competition in the awarding of these franchises is important. I would make a secondary point based on the experience of we've had in distribution companies mm. Uh, and that is that there really needs to be a way uh, to to um, sort of 
I think, limit the franchise length. You get a lower price the longer the franchise is because it's got a higher net present value. But you sort of give up the right uh, as the overseer to sort of claw the franchise back and reaward it. But I, I want to leave that discussion aside and just simply point out that some of these big companies aren't always necessarily wonderfully efficient. The biggest of them all is the Chinese transmission company, which is the biggest electricity company in the world by assets, as far as I know. No. Uh, but they had, you know, like 20% of the, the wind generation was, was never connected, was connected, but never allowed to use. So no. I'm not sure that they've always been uh, an absolutely wonderful example. And no. I, I, the second thing, the other thing, Stephanie, uh, is the social license. I mean, the biggest, there are two real barriers to getting transmission done in Australia. One is the stupid RIT test or whatever variation you want to use, which just completely ignores the actual need for transmission in favour of trying to work out how everyone benefits from it <laughs> in an economic sense and, and never gets to a satisfactory answer, in my opinion. Uh, and the other one is just social licence and, and how does more, how will more competition, I suppose, encourage social licence? Yeah, so maybe I'll just talk to the RITIP uh, for a moment, um, which is the regulatory investment test for transmission. That is a not, for, not fit for purpose regulatory cost benefit analysis. It was designed for upgrades and augmentations. It was never designed to build new projects, especially large major interconnectors and large major transmission projects. So that's one thing. The other thing about the regulatory framework for transmission and distribution, if you like, um, back in you know the 1980s, um, and the 1970s, basically, when we built the large generation, the centralized generation, the coal power stations, and the transmission that was going to transfer that electricity to the homes and businesses, there was overinvestment back in the day. And uh, the governments back in the day decided that they need to put a framework in place to stop gold plating and slow down investment. So we're still fighting the last war. This is what usually happens with governments. Yeah. And so what we've got right now, we are back, if you like, in the, um, you know, go back to the 1980s and that where we actually have to build massive amounts of infrastructure, both generation and transmission. Um, and in the recent uh, CEIG, analysis, $320 billion worth of it, private capital, and we are constrained within this regulatory framework that basically is about slowing down investment. Yeah, well, and it's, it's, it's not only that, Stephanie, it, you look at the stupid mo the modelling, and I call it stupid, it's done by very skillful modellers, but it produces these absolutely absurd results, in my opinion, that if a transmission link uh, is built, there'll be more wind in Victoria and less solar in New South Wales uh, or something, you know, uh, which is completely untestable and always open to extreme criticism uh, of which there's plenty because the, the results, you know, have just been constructed to achieve. It's the worst form of modelling where the model is underdone, is undertaken to, to produce a, known, a desired outcome rather than anything else. Yeah, and look, and, and also just the last point I would make on that is it's designed for um, criticising because it's a, criticizing the benefits. And these transmission projects are not, in and of themselves, cannot be assessed as a single project because they are delivering benefits more widely than what this test actually allows. And so you are never really going to capture all the benefits that are associated with the this major infrastructure. The network effects, if you like, the, the full network effects. It's the same with any individual project in a portfolio. Its 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 value is in its um, contribution to the portfolio mm -hmm. rather than uh, mm -hmm. its its own individual individual value. Stephanie, I want to hand back to Giles, who I'm, uh, we haven't talked about the social license. And yeah. 
Uh, But before we do get to that, uh, which is a big topic, I wanted to ask something that that I don't often wonder about. I look at the current overall structure of the management of this uh, build out where we've got state governments, uh, we've got the federal government, which has no uh, state rights, but but can introduce schemes like a carbon pricing scheme or, or distribution support or a capacity investment scheme. Uh, we don't have any single person uh, that's kind of uh, the energy czar that's responsible for the success or failure of it. Um, I, I, what do you think about the overall structure of, um, of, the, of the management of the NEM with the AEMO and AEMC um, uh, and the AR? Do you think about, and the states, do you think about that and, uh, you know, is it, is, could we do better on that? Uh, we can definitely always do better on that. I mean, how many governance reviews have we had in the last seven years of our market structures? We've had over six or seven reviews. So, you know, I would just, um, and a lot of these reviews basically came back with very similar recommendations around clarity of accountability, clarity of roles and responsibilities, making sure that you know a market operator is basically doing their role as a market operator and not swimming outside of their swim lane um that a regulator is there to police the um state the industry uh participants and making sure that they are you know following the rules not setting policy um and obviously a rule maker that is purely about rulemaking. I think since the federal government has come in um, into government, uh, we've seen quite a lot of improvements. Um, but I think there's still a lot of work to do. And my understanding is that in the at the energy ministers meeting last year in October, the energy ministers actually requested from AEMO a statement of role, which is about, you know, um, clarity of their accountabilities and roles and responsibilities. But I don't believe that that's been delivered yet. Um, I'd just like to get back to the sort of the, the RIT test and things like that. And as you and David have sort of discussed, um, you know, it sort of creates this sort of modelling which really isn't sort of fit for purpose and sort of, you know, can't really be, um, it's probably not very useful because it's so hard to predict in, in, in you know, sort of 10, 15 years' time. It opens itself then to criticism, and we've actually been publishing a bit of criticism about some of the ones, particularly mm. BNI West, and we've been sort of criticised for it. And the feedback that we get from a lot of people is that, look, just, Jesus, Giles, just, you know, we're just, we're just going to build this stuff. So, you know, shut your eyes and build it. But, um, but how do we actually then, it sort of begs the question, how do we reframe the writ or whatever it is to get these things done in a way um, and, and actually built or to increase the competition that your new paper argues for? And mm. then I guess we can go back to David's point about the um, the social license. So let's just sort of focus just first about, you know, how do we end this discussions about sort of, you know, mm-hmm. is there more solar here, less coal there, more wind here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because that just seems to be like this circular argument, which you can end up arguing forever and no one actually wins and everything gets yeah. delayed. Yeah, I mean, I'll say two things on that. The first is this is why, you know, I guess ministers agreed Uh, with AEMO to set up the integrated system plan. It's a system plan that looks at the overall system needs and looks at, you know, what are we going to need to plan for the different scenarios that might play out. And it's it's a huge task of of forecasting. And, you know, I don't think anyone's ever going to get that perfect, which is why you do scenario planning. Um, And I guess, you know, it's always going to be as good as its inputs and assumptions. Um, But I do feel like the, um, you know, obviously while it's the preferred scenario, which is the step change scenario, it is still a very conservative scenario. We're talking here about a scenario that um, looks out to when the coal power stations are going to be closing and then uh, provides a prediction of, you know, we're going to need this much of the generation mix, whether it's wind, solar, storage, and 
and it all basically depends on your inputs and assumptions and um and that but what we need is actually uh bolder and more ambitious scenarios that not necessarily are based on um purely hydrogen or other kind of technologies, but really showing us that if we wanted to reach a 1.5 degree um, future, and what does that actually look like? What does that look like for us in terms of, and let's not be afraid, let's be courageous about that. What does that look like from a generation mix? What does that look like from, you know, what role do households play in that and businesses, energy efficiency, demand response, and bring it all together under that. The ISP is supposed to do that, but I think there are the scenarios that are there um, still require quite a bit of tuning to get a lot of different stakeholders on board. I, I actually quite, I quite, I quite like that idea. Actually, sort of because we, we we must try and 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 um, and, and be part of this sort of one point five degrees scenario. So let's <laughs> let's say we do that, and that probably just means a lot more generation and a lot more network um, capacity. So how yeah. exactly do we get that done then? Because we just seem to have these regulatory hurdles in front of us. So how do we play through that? Well, this is where governments play a role. You know, these regulatory frameworks that have shackled us over the last 10 years. And not building... just the regulatory frameworks, it's building the, the national will for it. It is no, the social license that yeah. comes first. Yeah. The regulatory frameworks will fall away once we all agree. Well, there's a couple of things, though. So governments do have a, a role to play. And you could see the jurisdictions decided they're not going to follow path. And they're going to start doing things their own way. And Lily has been quite a leader in that space saying, right, I'm not going to um, work with the uh, energy, Australian energy regulator for my, for my transmission rules because they're just going to be clunky and take forever. And that's when the NEVA was established. And you've got New South Wales with their legislation and electricity roadmap. Yes, that creates that jurisdictional differences. But the states really had no choice. They had to do that. And our regula national regulatory framework is very slow and everything is very incremental change. I mean, the AEMC has been looking at our at the transmission review for how many years now? Four, five years? And the latest recommendations, let's shut the door on contestability because the jurisdictions are doing it anyway. Uh, let's try and fiddle with the red tea and see if there's any wins in that process but really it's not it's not big and courageous and that's i'm, exactly I'm talking too much here, here stephanie but i you know giles and i interviewed warren lasher from ERCOT uh, in texas back in 2018 and yeah. that's after we'd written a few articles about how well texas, texas is a big capitalist economy uh, a, a bigger market than Australia, and they just decided to do the transmission, and they got it done. You know, in the reason it still took them five or seven years, but it didn't take them seven years before they started it, which is mm. what it's taking here, it's and taking then another seven here. years to do it. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that is really missing here is telling the big picture story to the public. You know, getting that buy-in, engaging with the communities. There are a lot of communities that actually want to be part of this. You know, we do hear the noisy and the, and the other stories, but I've actually been uh, working with some of the communities in, in Western Victoria. There is a lot of support, not only to upgrade the transmission and get the interconnectors going. They see a lot of opportunities to electrify their regions and they see a lot of benefits from that. And um, like you'll see from the uh, city of Ballarat, um, and the committee for Ballarat, they're actually grassroots coming up with their new energy vision that they launched last weekend on Sunday that basically says we are going to be a community energy town and electrify the town and we need everybody on board and they're basically doing it grassroots. But imagine if we take that and we multiply it and our governments start to tell the story about the transition in a very positive way. Why we're doing it? What are the opportunities for the, for the regions? We're actually a step behind and now we're introducing, you know, community compensations, landowner compensations, which is all important, 
But I think there is still that big picture vision that needs to be told to the public. And I think that is the role of government. I, I 100% agree with that. Uh, I just don't think the government people themselves, all the state governments, you know, they're cautious. It's such a big change from them. Uh, and the, the, I don't think they're confident always of their ability to actually sell that vision. Mm. And I know from my own investment banking thing, if you don't believe it yourself, you'll find it very hard, not, not really believe it, you'll find it hard to t sell it to the sales desk on, on Monday morning. So mm. they need to convince themselves, first of all, and then get out and sell it. Oh, I think David hit the uh, mute button before he finishes his sentence. <laughs> it's okay. Look, we're gonna we're gonna as David tries to unmute himself, or even it doesn't. So Stephanie, I'm just kind of. Um, I mean, I, I guess the lesson from this is that maybe we shouldn't be sort of obsessed about the details of these um, of, of these sort of these written modelling. I mean, they're you know several hundred pages long, and they sort of make all these assumptions and these predictions. We shouldn't get sort of tied up in that. We should yeah. just be looking at the um, ISP and going ahead, um, subject to those social license issues. So is but even subject to those license issues, there is things that we can do. We, we can be proactive. We can use the communities that are supportive and we can partner with the media to tell those posit positive stories and start selling the benefits to people because there is so much opportunity to be had from this transition, whether it's jobs, whether it's, you know, the upskilling, the, the, the regions, electrifying the regions. I mean, some of these regions have energy poverty you know when you look go out uh west in victoria they actually have energy poverty and they are really calling for upgrades in their area and they see this as a massive opportunity to retain businesses in the area and the economic benefits are you know invaluable for for these communities and and we need to support them Mm. So look, you've been at the sort of you know the cutting edge of all these sort of debates about policies and regulatory issues and things like that. And look, we've seen from the latest survey by the Clean Energy Council that basically sort of um, you know sort of financial commitments for new projects you know, fell to basically zero in the March quarter, which is really a frightening, frightening yeah. thought when we're actually trying to get um, we're trying to accelerate or in, in, improve investments sort of threefold to get to. Um, oh to get to the 2030 targets. So look, let's just imagine that you're in whichever chair has all the power about this. I mean, and, and you obviously talk to investors and things like that. So what switches would you flick right now or what need to be flicked to get this investment rolling again? I would use the word certainty. I know we talk about that a lot, but what does that actually look like? It means that, you know, as governments and industry, we need to have we need to be on the same page where we are heading. What is our goal? Is our goal a step change, which is only closing down our power stations? Is our goal a 1.5 degree scenario? And what does that look like? We actually need to agree how ambitious we need to be. There is no shortage of investor appetite. I was at the Clean Energy Investor Conference yesterday it was packed, investors and businesses and banks and financiers who are very, very interested and keen. And one of the things that they all really need right now is that certainty. And I guess, you know, um, that brings us, you know, to that conversation about public versus private ownership um, conversation and, uh, and whether you want to talk about that. But, um, you know, whatever is the outcome that we are seeking, I think we need to make that clear. We need to set the goals and the targets to provide that certainty for investors to be able to close mm. their projects. So, so, so your argument for certainty really just comes really down to 1.5 degrees and that's basically your, you know, we, we, we're going to reach that target and that's what we should be doing. Because I guess if you think about the electricity market, we have an ambition maybe to get to 82% renewables by 2030, but it's not a, it's not a fixed target. Um, there's no mechanism to actually do that. You know, we have a pretty right. weak overall climate target of minus 43%. Um, right. So that's not particularly strong, and that doesn't provide the certainty. So, um, so getting back to the one point yeah, five so degrees. That's exactly right, Charles. Let, yeah, you go. Oh, got David. No, 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 Charles. I, I was, I was just uh, agreeing with you. The, you know, we need uh, more targets. We need ministers that believe in those targets and believe enough to be able to sell them to the their own parties and to and to the wider electorates. Uh, and, and 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 then we then 
from that will come the will to do it. Yeah, yeah. Look, you yeah. did mention this idea about sort of state and private ownership. I know it's been a big issue with the Clean Energy Investment Group, whose conference um, you were lucky enough to attend um, uh, yesterday. They didn't invite any media. I just can't imagine why. But um, anyway, um, <laughs> one of the things that um, one of the things that did emerge this week was the um, the Queensland going to legislate its renewable energy targets, but also declaring that it wanted to have fifty four percent on average state ownership of new of generation and um that's obviously a new generation because most of the you know, most of the capacity by then will be renewables um cig um has uh, raised concerns about that um can you just sort of tell us what, what those concerns are and, and, and the way to resolve that and what, yeah, yeah. Look, I, I can't speak on behalf of the clean energy investor group um but i can share what i know of you know what is going on and i can only share my views on um, public versus private. I guess one of the key things is it's a bit of a chicken and egg, right? You know, governments say we want to build um, this much generation by the state. Uh, investors are, are, you know, saying, yeah, we want certainty. Um, governments are saying, well, then you're not building this fast enough, so we might have to chip in. Um, and uh, we also need to make sure that we're creating local jobs and and all these kinds of other policy um, things that they do actually have to achieve. Um, and so, you know, you then um, having to to think about it from a, the governments want to take control as much as they they can because, as you know, ministers have the responsibility ultimately to keep the lights on. Um, and investors are saying, well, if you uh, are going to start owning um, what can be owned privately, at least make sure that things are competitive and transparent so that there's an equal playing field. Otherwise, th these investors and, and uh, commercial players will find it very difficult to um, get any bankability for their projects when they're competing with with governments. So again, this is not a, a CEIG view. This is my perspective on things. And um, but I do stress that you know certainty is going to be very important. And I go back to that um, conversation about the governance and the structures, and having clarity on the roles and responsibilities in this transition. So that we are not, you know, I guess, stepping over each other as we're going through this transition. Um, and we are all delivering on what we need to deliver with accountability and meet our targets. Yeah. I, I, the trouble is that within the Labor, I, I mean, within the Labor Party, let's be honest, there's this view that... Uh, electricity is is an essential service in, in a way that i don't know groceries aren't essential uh, uh because we don't need to eat right uh and it's it, tied up with that is this idea of bigness in electricity uh that electricity is a, a big thing that provided by big generators and completely ignores all the behind the meter and this and you know the, the broad markets uh, you know, uh, clearly, there's a role for governments to get involved in transmission and to set targets, you know, and, and frankly, if we had a national policy around carbon, other policies would be less needed uh, uh, and the market could work out solutions. Uh, no, virtually most economists would agree on a carbon tax or a carbon price, yeah. I, I, I think. Other than that, I, I couldn't agree more that the idea that, um, you, you know, you look in Queensland, for instance, and it comes down to the individual organisations. Like right now, frankly, as I look at it as an outsider, CS Energy is doing very, very little and what uh, Stanwell's getting on with doing a lot more. And But they all have to just, the people within those companies, as far as I can see, have to go mm -hmm. and ask the, the Queensland government for some money. And if the Queensland government hasn't got any money, nothing happens. And, and yeah. then you've still got a decision about whether you build expertise within these government-owned companies uh, mm -hmm. to actually do the site identification and development, which, by the way, takes, you know, to build a wind farm is at least seven years of wind studies bef before you get to investment decision, I reckon. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, or, or whether you sign PPAs and what's mm -hmm. the difference. That's right. And then the other thing is, you know... The, the whole notion that 
every time we have a coal power station that is very close to closure, you know, two, three years, we start hearing, you know, whether they're rumours or discussions or whatever they are, they do actually chill investment when these rumours start about kicking the can down the road and extending those closures. We have had it time and time again. And, you know, one of the key things that really needs to happen is when a date is set, a date is set and we do all that we can to make sure that we get there. That is the only thing that is going to provide certainty and attract investment. Um, And I think the capacity investment scheme is going to have a big role to play in this, um, you know, in that whole auctioning and, um, and supporting the states to make sure that they've got the right targets and the right goals um, ahead of these closures. So, for example, I think one of the things that New South Wales has done in their um, in the roadmap that was published a few weeks ago is they've extended the dates, but they've also increased the targets. So rather than, you know, for example, a 900 megawatt firming, I think they should make that much bigger so that at least they don't just meet the goal they need for that coal power station, but a little bit more to provide them that insurance that they're going to need. Yes, I I, I have a slightly different take on that, Stephanie, and that is that there's too much emphasis on the firming part and not enough on the bulk energy. Uh, Mm. I I personally think the firming thing with batteries is the easiest problem to solve. That's my personal opinion. What the hardest part is just getting the bulk energy built. That's the part of trying to say that takes as long as transmission to get done on these big wind farms. The ISP calls for 16 gigawatts of new, or models 16 gigawatts of new capacity in, or total capacity in, in New South Wales by 2030. Yeah. The, 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 the New South Wales roadmap only has 12 gigawatts. Yeah. You know, there's, there's not enough. The target for bulk energy in New South Wales and the mechanisms for actually getting it done on time because the transmission doesn't come till 2028 uh, and there's not much you can do about that. So I suppose you're stuck with the firming prior to then. So I guess, you know, if, if that's the case for that next goal, then how do we make sure we plan for the next one? So what's the next? So the next coal power station is Araring. The next Vales one, Point. Vales uh, or Point. Your, your lawn closes Mon- in Victoria. Correct. I mean, will it- <laughs> you know, and so my, my where I'm coming from is we know that these dates are coming. And to your point, we need that bulk energy. We need the firming. We need the transmission. How do we expedite that? How do we deliver on that in the most efficient way without cutting corners? And we, we, we have provided a solution in this report, but obviously, you know, setting the targets just to meet a goal is not enough. We do have to be ambitious so that we can at least reach those goals. More policy and more building, more determination to build the social license would yes, help. Absolutely. You know. hmm. Yeah. Well, Stephanie, it's been a fascinating discussion. Um, really do appreciate um, um, you joining the Energy Insiders podcast um, this week. And look, um, congratulations on all your work and your advocacy and um, and, and your analysis and um, and everything like that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Giles. Thank you, David. And we'll be back uh, with part two of the podcast um, in a moment. to part two of this uh, podcast um david um uh, stephanie bashir really interesting conversation um with stephanie and i think i have to agree with this idea of um set a strong target and work backwards set a target indeed and stephanie's uh seems very well informed and i i always enjoy those kind of conversations and you know we're still talking about transmission we talk about it regularly I think our listeners may think we've we've talked enough about transmission, uh, but you know uh, we've been talking about it since 2017, and it was when I started writing about the need for more transmission at Renew Economy. And initially, it was a slow conversation, 
and we still haven't got much built since then except for, you know, Project Energy Connect. As uh, Stephanie says in her report, um, uh, the, new, the Queensland New South Wales minor upgrade has been done, but it doesn't actually give you any more power because other constraints have emerged. We're really, you know, the progress is not very visible. And look, we're starting to see that, of course, with the slowdown in investment. Look along those lines, David. Um, interesting to see Brookfield coming out. It's sort of um, sort of handed in its sort of 400-page um, can we please merge or buy out Origin uh, request to the competition regulator. Um, interesting how heavily it is playing its card of um, we can do so much better than everybody else. Um, without us, Australia has um, a snowflake's chance in hell of reaching its... Um, its uh, current targets and um, that they're going to spend $30 billion, which is about $10, $10 billion more than what they previously said over the next 10 years, um, building wind, solar and storage. But um, they too might need a connection. Yeah, well, doing better than everyone else. If everyone else is AGL and Energy Australia, is not very hard because they haven't done anything. Uh, and, and neither's uh, Origin really, other since um, since Stockyard Hill Wind Farm, which you know the PPA for that was signed five years ago at least. Um, it, the, you know the three big gentailers, in my opinion, have been to their investors' cost, uh, completely ignored uh, what needed to be done, clung on to the past, and refused to embrace the future. And uh, look, AGL's got a strategy day coming up in the near future, I think, and maybe we'll hear some change of plan then, although I'm not really holding out my any great hopes. So I, I do hope that Brookfield spends its $30 billion and, and, and builds something like 12 gigawatts. It sounds like a lot, but it's actually not. Uh, it's, uh, you know, in the scale of what needs to be done, what will be done in Australia, if they don't uh, get on and either sign PPAs for that amount, and which you end up, when you sign a PPA, you commit to buying the electricity for a long time. And effectively, if you're an accountant, you can almost see that commitment as a liability. It's almost like a debt. So in that sense, when you buy energy from someone like Neo and who's actually building it, you might as well build it yourself. And all of these three big, sorry, I'm talking a lot, but these three big gentailers, they just don't have the portfolios. We've discussed last week uh, that, you know, it takes forever to get a wind site up these days. You've got to find the site. You've got to do your wind studies. You've got to go through the environmental approval process. Uh, you've got to source your equipment. You've got to build it. It takes, look how long Golden Winds planes in Victoria has taken. Or taking and it's only just starting construction now. Um, or McIntyre in Queensland. And, you know, these big gentailers, they're just going to lose all, all their business as far as I can see. Yeah, well, I mean, that's one of the points that Brookfield, Brookfield makes, actually, is that without them, then uh, Origin was probably only going to build about four or five gigawatts in the next sort of, you know, un until the rest of the decade. And they said, well, we're going to treble that um, because we actually want to accelerate the transition or we want to do better than even a 1.5 degree target. Um, and Giles, there's a second point about it. I actually think, and I've said lots and lots of times that there are lots of benefits with the newer technology there are uh, competition considerations and we haven't thought about them enough but i think there are benefits and uh, reduced costs in the system by reintegrating generation and uh, and retailing and distribution so you know every network company like osgrid maintains a whole database of connection points houses and, and, and the wires that connected to them and you effectively bills are paid somewhere along the line based on the amount of electricity that's consumed. And the retailer maintains more or less a separate view of the same thing. So you've got duplicate costs there uh, and you've got all these um, uh, fence, safe, fence, safe fence Ring fencing. rules. That, yeah, yeah, that make it difficult to get the benefits out of having, you know, like uh, community batteries or battery shareage, uh, one, my house selling to the house next door. Anyway, that's a topic for another day. But no, the but point it's an, is, it's an interesting topic, David, because it's actually one I've been sort of um, harping on about for um, probably at least half a decade or e even more, because that's kind of the model in, in in other countries in Europe, and it seems to be easier for them to make that sort of transition at, at a lower cost. As you say, it's the networks that maintain all the connections to the houses, and the gen and the gentile just come in and send people a bill. Yes, well, there's a funny uh, 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 comedy routine about that, Giles. But look, uh, uh, there's a lot to, to talk you're about. You're going to have to tell us now. <laughs> but that's okay. You don't want to. Um, what else do we have on the menu for this week? 
uh, this week going ahead. As I said, as, as far as I not not too much else that I'm aware of. I would like to, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about the social license, and and we're starting to hear some better news coming. Of Penny Sharp uh, was talking about the need to build social license, even as some of the other people were saying, well, maybe we need a slowdown until we've got it built. Uh, What we really need is this commitment from all of our leaders uh, and commitment backed up to some extent by policy. If they don't believe it themselves, they won't be selling it to the community. And if they believe it themselves, then they'll put in place the the policies to make it happen. So it's really... That's that's where we're at. Yeah. Look, I just one thing we did sort of touch on in the interview with Stephanie was um, Queensland. Um, they um, announced over the weekend that they're going to legislate their renewables targets, um, which is good, I guess. Um, they're going to throw another five hundred million dollars at Clean Co, so it can sort of start um, getting investment in new wind and solar projects with a particular emphasis on central Queensland. But one of the things that seems to be troubling. Um, some of the big investors, private investors that just don't understand how it will work is this desire to have a majority share in um, all this new generation sort of, you know, um, on on average. And I guess, as Stephanie said, it's a bit of a chicken and the egg situation. One, the private investors seem to be sort of stonewalling, so the government's intervening. But if the government intervenes too much, then the private investors get worried. So where should we be landing on this? Well, my view has been clear for years that it's better if the private sector does the uh, operates in the market and does the investing, and it's the government's jobs to set up the uh, policies and set the t- targets, and you know to check the progress against them. There are some very big things to happen in Queensland. It's the state with the most renewable energy potential. I don't care what South Australia or Victoria say about anything else. <laughs> Queensland has got the fantastic wind and solar resource. Uh, and it's, you know, even if you want to talk about hydrogen, which I don't, it's closer to some of the Asian markets, maybe not the European ones, that's West Australia. Uh, and, and you know, it's where I think actually think we'll see the most new projects built uh, and uh, come on over the next few years. But there is a problem, you know, um, uh, with the government having to fund it all one way or another is also. Mm. Anyway... Okay, we'll we'll just leave that one open. I think we'll come back to that some other time. Um, Thank you very much, David. Um, Thank you to Stephanie Bashir from Next Advisory for joining us on the podcast and a fascinating discussion. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors, um, Evergen and Pylon. And thanks to everyone out there for listening to this podcast once again. It's just fantastic to continue to get great feedback on the podcast. And we enjoy doing it and um, interviewing a lot of other people. Do check out the Solar Insiders podcast and the Driven podcast, which are both back running regularly now on alternate weeks. Um, fortnightly basis and um, there's some great interviews there and some great discussions as well about news in those spaces and um, we'll be back um, again next week bye for now Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.